0: You're about to join Jerry Parker, Marit Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy.
1: Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where each week we give you a raw and honest account of what it's like to be a rules-based investor what news and articles caught our attention, and of course, uh, where we attempt to answer all of your questions. Moritz is out this week, so it's just you and me, Jerry. How are you doing? Great. Uh, Good afternoon. How are you? Yeah, no, I think I'm doing fine. I think we're both struggling a little bit with a cold, so bear with us today if you hear us sniffling or if you don't feel that there's the same level of energy in our voices, but we'll do our our best and and by the way if you're tuning in for the first time welcome we love that you are here and and we'll do our very best to inform and perhaps even entertain you about systematic investing during the next hour or so now apparently there was a black friday back in 1869 where golden stock markets collapsed after being driven to record highs by speculators trying to corner the gold market and then, of course, we had Black Tuesday and Black Thursday back in 1929, which I think a lot of people will be familiar with. Of course, the uh, Black Monday in 1987 is probably still clear in some of our listeners' mind, where we had a 22.6% drop in the Dow Jones in one day, I think the biggest one-day drop still in history. Um, but nowadays, we have Black Friday every year, uh with a slightly different meaning of course we just had one um but from a trend following perspective uh this year Black Friday coincided with the end of November which looks indeed to finish in the black for all the usual indices that we follow uh as well on our side for 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 Don uh adding to um, what currently looks to be a pretty uh good year for for the industry uh and um and uh, in terms of my own trend barometer that I uh, Published every day, uh, it finished uh, at a reading of 47, which is only slightly above the average that I've seen uh, since 2015. The daily average is around 42. So not a particular strong finish on that, um, but I do think the industry probably had a reasonably solid uh, month. And um, as I mentioned, uh, since November is just... Uh, has just wrapped up. Um, we can go through a little bit of the, the headlines uh, that we encountered in our uh, trading this month. I mean, from a market point of view, there wasn't a lot of sort of really noticeable market moves. But then when I look at the kind of the breakdown, we still had coffee prices go up by 20% or so, uh, which on our side was the biggest losing uh, position we had. And um, on the other side, on the flip side of that, we had Nat gas uh, dropping 12% in the month of November, which uh, was one of the bigger winners uh, in the portfolio. But, you know, overall on our side, it was a month that was really led by the, the strong equity markets. Uh, and uh, recently, reasonably well bid US dollar, uh, which we both uh, benefited from. And then, of course, offset in parts of a, a, a kind of a sluggish start in the fixed-income markets to the month. They, they recovered a little bit towards the end of it. Uh, commodities were pretty mixed for us in November. We had losses in metals, we made some money in meats and in the grains, and the energy sector was pretty pretty mixed uh, overall. So I don't know how how everything panned out on, on your side, uh, Jerry, for, for the week, for the month.
2: Yeah, well it's uh, pretty much the same. Coffee was a bummer at a big rally. I guess everyone wants to get long at these big lo- at these lows. Uh coco down, up, back down again. So that trade is um looking like a lot of the other recent uh new entries for me, just uh almost immediate turning into a small loss. So hoping that gold and silver are gonna keep uh rallying and uh palladium is sort of a gift that keeps giving is to borrow a a phrase from moritz uh dollar awesome grains short they're good um so it's a mixed bag but not a lot of good trends uh crushing it these days at a few stocks i had a fifteen dollar winner in uh target one day good earnings and then another day fifteen dollar loser
1: in dollar tree so that's the way goes sometimes that's the way it goes sometimes that is true yeah i mean i guess we were a little bit spoiled early in the year where kind of every month turned out to be a positive month for for the industry and for our programs and all of that and then we've had a couple of sort of mixed months um, and kind of bring brought us back to reality this is exactly how trend following is um, and now we're kind of hopefully finishing on a strong note as we come into the end of the year but also the end of a decade And then, you know, and a decade where maybe some investors will sit back and feel that, oh, yeah, I mean, that thing about diversification, that doesn't really work because I should just have been long-only equities and nothing else. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, of course, we talk about diversification a lot. We know it's important. Um, It's, um, you know, it's kind of a a humility, um, uh, you know, of, you know, it shows humility about an uncertain future. I mean, that's the only thing we know how to to guard against, um, not knowing what the future holds, is, is diversification. And, and, and I certainly believe that that still holds up. Um, it helps us minimize re- regret. I mean, most people don't like losing. Um, uh, or, uh, or maybe put it differently, they, they, they hate losing a lot more than they like, like winning. Um, so it helps us um, with uh, regret. Um, but of course, there might be some people out there, of course we don't know that that still feel that um, diversification really isn't for them because um you know, look at all the people who've been most successful in the world um you know, the Facebooks and apple founders and all of that them' in- incredibly focused in their uh, in endeavors and and that's paid off uh, really well. so so diversification is I think maybe something people are gonna have to just um, um, think about uh, how they want to structure their portfolios, Where they, if they see a place for what we do, trend following in their portfolios, as we enter into 2020 in in just a few weeks. Um, what about you, Jerry? Well, you know, just thinking about that, uh, one of the most, most amazing things
2: is that um, on a standalone or long-only basis, a lot of the markets that we trade, the currencies and the commodities, they don't really fit in well historically with... Uh, adding diversification without materially minimi- uh, reducing the performance. So with trend following wrapped around it, oh, gracious, you can add in all these commodities, all the interest rates, uh, longs and shorts in the bonds and the stocks, and you can really create this diversified portfolio, but not without the trend following. And it, I don't know, it, it's to us, it's been working. Uh, it worked for, It's worked for a long time, and people need to get the message that uh, – in order to preserve capital and reduce risk and moderate your portfolio swings without uh, really reducing Mm -hmm. your profit. You can uh, add all these great markets, but not without the trend-following piece. Trend-following miraculously takes markets that are not good on a buy and hold and turns them into contributors, profit contributors to the portfolio and lots and lots of uh, diversification. So our stocks... uh, Superior to all these other markets, I don't think so. But it sort of looks like it recently, but that'll probably change as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I still go back to this point about that. There's never really been, uh, or there has never been, a white paper written that uh, hasn't proved that by adding a trend following to uh, stocks and a stock and a bond portfolio, um, and that it improves the returns as well as reducing the risk. But of course, you have to put into that. The little caveat about time frame, I mean, it doesn't happen every year. It doesn't happen every two or three, five years maybe. But in the long run, it's still a great uh, way of, you know, building uh, real wealth if you don't want to do what we do and that get into the nitty gritty of just focusing on trend following plus nothing, so to speak. And
2: that's why, you know, it's so important uh, for people who don't like trend following to go to the heart of the matter, which is it doesn't work anymore. So yeah yeah blah 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 whatever you're saying okay you've got the papers you've you can prove it you've got the back testing but it doesn't work anymore and that's why we have to counter that with well maybe we don't have evidence that it doesn't work anymore so it's a really big battle and it's a point of contention and it's the issue and so if it does work then everyone should have their money in trend following because you make the same you make about the same amount of money uh, risk adjusted and with materially less drawdowns that's why it's so critical that uh, if you're pro or anti, you can get very emotional and very extreme in your opinions on these things. So it's the issue. Is it going to start working again? Is it, is it, is it going to stop? Has it, has it stopped? So. Uh,
1: right, right, right. I think that's the point. I mean, I don't think it has stopped. Working, I think I know a lot of people love saying it has, but I don't think it's true. And I think we have to. Um, first of all, I think we have to stop being negative about uh, the performance. The performance this decade, for many of the best managers, um, you know, is not materially different uh, to what it was back in the eighties. It might be lower than the nineties, without a doubt. There's always going to be a decade that stands out. The same with equity markets, uh, for sure. Um, and but you know, uh, certainly in our case, I would say. This decade is uh, above the decade, starting in 2000, despite the fact that we had 2008, which was a great year in uh, in, in the 2000s. So, um, so no, it, I mean, it hasn't stopped working. But what people forget is that you can't compare uh, just the CTA industry and, and, and the S&P and say, well, this continues to work, because in the S&P, and I don't know the hard numbers, but I think directionally I'm right on this one. It's such a few number of stocks that can you can attribute all the gains uh, that we've seen. Uh, you can pick so many stocks that hasn't done anything or in fact has gone down a lot. So, um, so I mean, you know, uh, there are many... Uh, you wouldn't buy all the CTAs anyways. You want to find the ones that... That have done well and continues to do well and and that's just the way it works um but anyway that was a little bit of a rant this um uh today uh let's dive into our usual um topics um how about some tweets for the from the last week of november
2: i've got a few here i uh, had a, a fun week high in quality maybe low in quantity but uh some good things to think about and talk about our friend Corey hofstein had a video that I watched, uh, came highly recommended about diversification. And so it's mostly a, about uh, stocks. And so I think that it's still some good lessons here. Um, of course, in my mind, I'm always thinking about adding those currencies and commodities in as well. But, uh, he starts by saying a risk management begins and ends with diversification, but only if we embrace a holistic what, how, and when framework. Incorporating trend equity strategies may be a powerful way to introduce how and when diversification to a portfolio. So he's just basically saying, hey, how about this trend following thing? It really makes things better and it adds some diversification. Uh, It's going to make a little bit less when stocks uh, do really great. It's going to preserve capital when stocks do really poorly. But uh, you have the stock piece of the different stocks or the 500 stocks long only. So let's replace some of that with some trend um trend equity that's a great it's a great term you know so he's trying to get to the masses and say you know um let's don't talk about uh currencies and commodities quite yet let's just uh, think about how much how great it can be if you add some trend to your the markets you like
1: yeah i mean i think that brings up an interesting point and that is you know as we as we've, um, if we use the f- the term CTAs, we we know that uh, it it that contains so many different uh, things nowadays. But now the same thing can be said, I guess, about trend following. I mean, trend following is many different things. So, putting a label on it, like you just mentioned, trend equity, so it's very specific to what you do. I think that's a great way of going about it. Uh, maybe we have to be diversified trend as as a caption because we we well, I mean, that's what we do. Um, and, uh, so maybe in the, in the next, uh, decade, we need to be a little bit better on our narrative and our communications, making clear what it is we do, uh, so people don't get confused. But I, I did notice that, the uh, Corey has been out with a few, um, uh, things in, in that, um, area. Uh, I haven't set myself studied it in detail, but I know that they like, or he likes trend and, and, uh. And also the people are up at Resolve that uh, that I think he's worked with on a project uh, in this regard. So, so yeah, I mean, if there are other ways people can find ways to include trend following in their strategy in the way they look at the markets, I mean, we talk a lot about why we don't like uh, trying to anticipate, why we don't like trying to predict, and I think... What's been really tough for people who, in this last decade who may have missed a, long, a big part of the bull market is just because they are being bombarded by information and and and, 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 and people who are trying to predict, and their may, a fr- a frame of mind gets influenced by that. And and, and you can say right now, well, what, do you really want to buy equities at new all-time highs? But you could also just turn around and say, you know, why not buy equities as long as you know where your stop is? I mean, what if equities will continue for another 20 percent you want to be part of that but you just let the price tell you what to do and when when time is up it's up and prices will tell you when to get out and potentially get short so um, so i think the more uh, people
2: yeah that reminds me of a of a statement that uh, someone told me when i first started chesapeake uh, a client said uh, you should come in every day and uh, answer this question, uh, do I still wanna be long or do I still wanna be short? If you can't say Mm. yes, this isn't a good trade today, you know, you should uh, get out of it. So I thought to myself, you know, that sounds kind of true. I mean, kind of like a lot of things about cliches in the market, they sound kind of true. Uh, But, you know, I'd always go back and say, well, I don't think uh, my uh, mentor is said this, and I wonder what they would say, and why am I not equipped to answer this question? And so, uh, the fact of the matter is, I don't want to buy equities at all-time highs today. Uh, I wouldn't want to do that because my system bought them six months ago. So, if I I don't want to do today what I should have done six months ago. I want to have this trade on with lots of profit in it, having followed this trend in the bonds or the stocks or whatever I'm trading. And uh, so, I wouldn't do the trade today because it would be a mistake. I wouldn't be following my system and so I think, you know, a lot of these questions are, do you want to do X, Y, Z depends on what is your system telling you? If you have lots of profit built into this trade, then it's much better. You can sit still and enjoy it a lot more if you're following the system. And especially when the trade has a nice profit in it in being, versus being faced with this artificial choice. You know, should I, do I want this position today? I mean, I have no idea. You know, I'm not supposed to buy it today. I'm supposed to buy it six months ago.
1: Mm yeah no absolutely good start to the twitter um segment um what else were was happening in in your twitter feed this week well i was
2: uh, focusing on meb faber a lot this week and listening to mm-hmm. some of his stuff and reading his stuff and uh there is a good podcast out there with Andreas clonow and i haven't got around to it yet i took good notes there's some controversial things in there he's he's a trend follower or He talks nice about it sometimes, and so, anyways, there's some different things in there that I think we can get into next week. I was waiting for the transcript to get it perfect, so, Mab, get that darn transcript out there. Every day, I'm checking the website (laughs) for this transcript. I don't really want to go by my notes or have to re-listen to it again, but, uh, anyways, we'll get to that later, but he did have this one kind of uh, tweet that I thought was pretty interesting. It's about clients, you know, we're always complaining about clients and they can't follow us. We're following the system. You need to follow us as we're following the system for you. And he says in this tweet, uh, nearly every investor I speak to says they base their allocations to funds, decisions on a process, not performance. And I think that is at least partially true when they're buying into a fund, but it almost universally not true when they're selling. It's all performance. Imagine someone saying, your performance is extraordinary but I'm not comfortable with the process. So we're selling, they don't. Also rarely, people say process is intact, but strategy is getting crushed. So we're adding to our investment. (laughs) That's kind of funny, right? Uh, A simple simple check is to add your sell rule discipline when the fund buy is made. You just say to yourself, I'm gonna buy this fund, I'm gonna buy Dunn or Chesapeake for this reason, and here's how, and here's my self discipline on both of those. Many funds and strategies can go ten years of overperformance or underperformance. Does your process
1: incorporate that fact? I would say I've certainly seen some of that this year, uh, where people who took uh, took time, did their analysis, and uh, you know before making an investment, um, so they were studying, you know, as you say, decades of performance numbers. Um, to get comfortable and, and to understand uh, what we do. Um, but then within you know an investment horizon of only 12, 18 months, because it has been somewhat challenging, um, then uh, they decide to reduce or redeem. Um, so, so they have these completely two different ways of getting in and getting out of, of a manager. Um, and it's a great shame. That that's the way it is, uh, and and again, I, I I think it goes back to what we often come back to, which is the behavioral side of things, right? It's it's it's, it's you know they they emotions play such a big role, unfortunately, in how we make uh, decisions. But in finance, you have to really be careful uh, with letting your emotions run. We always get more bullish towards the end of a bull market. We almost get more conservative at the towards the end of a of a, of a bear market, and um, so we need to be careful with that i mean i um i've had andreas up on uh, the podcast before and he's a great guest he has his uh, opinions and as you you say they're not uh, as far as i recall they're not you know 100% in in favor of trend falling all the times but he he does these things where he tries to to uh, dissect you know can you replicate some of the you know best track records by s- s- simple rules and and I think I, I did listen to actually Mep, uh, who always produces great content, uh, speaking with Andreas. And I and and Mip actually was focusing a lot on on Andreas's first book, uh, following the trend, um, which is a great book to to read if you want to learn about you know a little bit more about the nitty gritty of. Systems, but without getting into the, you know, every single formula, so to speak, uh, but just conceptually how you could replicate some of the good track records. And MEP was saying that Andreas should, uh, and I concur with that. Andreas, you should really, if you're listening, you should really go and, and update your studies to see whether the way you were replicating the performance of some of these managers still holds true, or if these managers have actually evolved and uh, performance since you launched your book a few years ago you know, has started to deviate more. But that would be an interesting thing to see. And maybe one day we'll get Andreas to join us and um, and talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, I'm definitely going to tweet a lot about that,
2: because uh, he had some controversial things in there that, um, oh, yeah, one of them was, well, uh, which is, you know, I've talked about this a lot, and I think Moritz agrees to, some, I don't know about uh, Dunn, but uh, it's okay. In fact, it's, Okay, it's it's okay. But it's between us, you know, us between us guys here on the and gals on the podcast. It's okay. It's nothing negative to call ourselves speculators. Number one, and then it's okay to uh, look in terms of betting. You know, we're kind of placing these bets in the markets. And he says, "No, that's crazy." Okay, so we got a lot of controversial stuff to look into. Yeah, at a later date, I look forward to it. And boy, if we ever got him on the podcast
1: that would be fun as well yeah i'm sure uh last time a- i asked him he had football training with his son so a football match <laughs> so he'll he, it's yeah he will yeah. We'll make it happen yeah um so this is a, a kind of a interesting
2: we've touched on this topic many times and maybe even today so um this is from uh, morgan housel again really enjoy his stuff um We'll never get rid of gurus because assuming someone knows everything is easier than trying to figure out how they knew one thing. They let us pretend the future is knowable and the path for it is obvious. I think that's kind of a thing about trend following. You're really just shocking the worldview of the person who's not really into it and studied it and had a good experience with it. It's just a shock to the world that we're going to make money on and we're going to lose on the majority of our trades. And we're not going to predict and you're going to handle this trade every single time the same way i mean can't you do better than this what am i paying you for so i think uh, this is just an eternal topic of uh, predicting and pretending that we can can kind of figure the future
1: out i mean um of course we remember back in the uh, in the late 90s early 2000 a lot of people had all these very bullish predictions about where the markets could continue to go and and of course, it turned out to be pretty much the high um, before a major, um, you know, crash or, or whatever we would call it. But what I think is interesting with, with this is that if you're, if you're right, and if your predictions is right, why not just wait in any event just for the price to tell you when to get in, when to get out? I mean because you you know that that if you're right that the market will go from from point A to point B and let's say b is is a lot higher, well then price will tell you and guide you as to when that's going to happen. So I find it a little bit difficult for people to can't understand, as you say. I mean, I think a lot of people are shocked that we don't look at any news and we're just simply looking at the price, but it shouldn't be that surprising that that works because price will always tell you where you're heading. Yeah, and I've said many times, how much better can they
2: be? I mean, how much better can you just discretionary or use other inputs than price? How much better can you be to just um, know when to buy that low versus just, heck, wait for the thing to rally a tad and then get in and place your stop loss? And then another thing we have going for us that uh, turns it all around, which makes uh, a system almost impossible to beat And we've seen these in studies by Kahneman, and we've tweeted and talked about it. And that is following a process and following Mm -hmm. rules every single time. That just puts you in another category. And uh, your ability to take money out of the markets is just incredibly enhanced because you have a process and a system and rules. Because even if you get it right a few times, the chances are you're not going to be able to outproduce the price and following the trends uh, with a stop-loss and taking small losses uh, with some other types of approach, you know, that
1: may not work all the time. And I think, you know, there is a lot of evidence. I mean, obviously, there's been a few books released this year talking about systematic uh, or quant-based investors who've been incredibly successful and taking out a lot of money, hundreds uh, or billions of dollars, in in one case more than a hundred billion dollars, following a quantitative process. Um, but if, even if you just look at the rankings of the most successful uh, managers uh, right now uh, within the broader hedge fund category, I bet you 90% of the top 10 are quant funds. Uh, we know from last week's talk that um, more capital, Louis Bacon, which I'm not, I don't know that they're quant-based, they probably use some quantitative analysis, but I guess they're kind of a more discretionary global macro manager, and how they are finding it too difficult to to do what they do, so they're uh, returning capital to investors. And this was interesting. In the conversation I heard, um, I heard this morning a conversation with um, uh, Mike Batnick and, and Ted Seides uh, about the state of the hedge fund uh, industry, um, and we can talk about that later. But one of the things that uh, Ted Si said uh, who obviously knows the the uh, from an allocator point of view know the manager environment well he says there there's always you you can always find managers who are kind of under the radar who don't want to be in the limelight who don't want to be the biggest they just want to focus on delivering really good solid above average return but nobody you know only the a smaller subset of of allocators will will know about them and and that's exactly what they want they don't want the big headlines, uh, uh, you know, to be about them. But they have no problem in delivering that alpha still. And I think it's the same. We can find names like this in in our industry for sure. Um, so um, yeah, anyway, that was a little bit of a tangent, I guess. What else uh, did you find, Jerry, this week?
2: Well, you know uh as i said before i feel like that uh, i'm on a mission to find and uh, read any sort of article and i can turn it into uh, something that's relevant to trend following or why trend following works and so i found this article in the new york times and it's was the, one of the most popular tweets i've had uh believe it or not and it's the title of it was the zen of weightlifting <laughs> and uh, okay so the article the quote i pulled out of there goes like this to advance beyond the low-hanging fruit in any meaningful discipline you must get comfortable spending time at the plateau a form of purgatory keep showing up and pounding the stone and so i feel like that's what a lot of traders and systematic guys feel like is that uh, we're in purgatory a lot of time and uh, we're getting criticized we're Out of the mainstream, we're trading crazy commodities and shorts and a systematic approach. Oh my God, can you please just limit it to one dumb thing or one crazy thing at a time and we can't do it. Uh, So we're kind of in purgatory. We have have very few people who uh, are feeling it the way we feel it, like uh, the stock people can kind of take comfort in each other's miseries. But uh, I just thought it was pretty interesting that so many people like this and sort of I didn't even mention uh trading at all but i had a lot of likes on
1: that one yeah yeah and i mean keep showing up is i mean that's a great life lesson right i mean uh uh, in any industry you're in but it certainly is very important in our industry and 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 part of the whole philosophy about taking small losses is that you can keep showing up every day and still you know put on your trades and and be you know uh, you know rather than uh, shooting for the for the one or two big home runs of your career, but with the risk of you blowing up uh, much before that they uh, they occur. So uh, yeah, no, that's that's always nice when you see an article like that that uh, seemingly has nothing to do with what we do, but then you find all these parallels along the way. So uh, yeah, that's a great great one. I
2: also had a it was a nice tweet uh, from Wayne this week as well, and I've heard of this before, you know, and I'm really confounded a little bit by simple systems or uh, keeping things simple, but not too simple. And I dislike hearing statements that I can't like get a really good feel for what the heck, you know, is really meant by these statements. And uh, Wayne starts out by saying 25 years of quant modeling wisdom in a nutshell, quote, uh, the goal is to master the balance balancing act of simplicity versus complexity. Of establishing a core thesis that is profound, insightful, and interesting, and yet expressed in a single sentence. Don't be simplistic, but keep it simple. Oh my gosh! You know what does that mean? I mean, I can't figure out exactly what I can do with that. So I, you know, what I did? I went to the dictionary. Yeah, that's exactly. I I typed in "simple" versus "simplistic." So this is what I tweeted, and this comes from uh, you know the Googling that phrase, simple versus simplistic. Simple is straightforward, plain, easy, ordinary, or uncomplicated. A simple solution to a problem is usually a good solution. A simplistic solution is too easy. That is, it oversimplifies and fails to deal with the complexities of the situation. Ah, okay, a little bit better than Woody. we triple team this subject here. He goes, using an algorithmic system that takes bets on both sides of all liquid markets is prudent because of its humility. Humility is the proper response to a game with infinite dimensions. Making long
1: only bets by the seat of one's pants is the most complex yet mindless approach. Hmm. I mean, I think this is kind of a, a blessing and a curse, right? Because um, I think the blessing is that we... Actually, that's what we try to do. I mean in, in a sense when we build our models we keep we, we, we tell people you know don't overthink it. Good, en- good enough is good enough and don't don't make it too complicated because it won't hold in the long run. you know you lose your robustness, et etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think at the same time as an industry we've been probably using um, the word simple, um, in in the wrong way because I think a lot of people have ended up thinking that what we do is so simple they can do it and it shouldn't cost any money. Uh, they shouldn't pay for it. So um, I think the the, 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 uh, the, 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 the not the, I don't want to use the word complex, but the the real valuable thing we do is we take something that is inherently complex. I mean financial markets are inherently complex and we we, we find simpler rules. To extract profits over time, so so that's the that's the challenge we uh, we have, and I you know and I and I, I I mean of course you can go to and and read a book about like Jim Simons that we've talked about so much in the last month, uh, that's not simple what they do uh, for sure. Um, I'm not even sure they know exactly what they do because it's kind of machine learning stuff by now. So that's not what we do. Um, We know what goes into the model. We know what to expect uh, to come out at the other end. Um, And I will say that, certainly when I look at what we do on our side as a firm, the way we do things today compared to trend following maybe 25 years ago, I would say it's more sophisticated. I mean, there are more things that goes into the process, but we're still trying to um, make it a relatively Simple process, but I but I I will recognize that the, it's it is not as as easy as it was uh 25 years ago in order to be successful, and I think if you look at those uh you know if if you if you I mean in the very long run it may not make any difference right because you you mentioned that as well I mean what if we just took a a system with rules you know 30 40 years ago and did nothing and just let it run I mean is can we beat that maybe not I don't know. But I will say, I think that if you do that, if you keep it that simple and never really evolve, but just keep to some really simple rules, and there are maybe one or two managers that I know of at least that that probably does that, I think the price you pay is not necessarily long-term performance, but it's the volatility it comes with. Then you can go back to David Bruce saying is that, well, the most volatile systems are the most robust, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay, fine. So if you can live with the volatility, yeah, maybe you can do what we do in a relatively simple way and in 30, 40, 50 years over that period, you'll do really, really well. But most people can't handle that volatility and certainly on the client side, they don't want that anymore because they think they can get something that is much safer, lower vol and gives you the same levels of return. And for short periods of time, that may be true, um, but in the long run, I mean, there is still... A reason I believe that so few non-systematic trend-following managers have as long as track records as Chesapeake and Don. I mean, they, you you just don't see them. But I think that the uh, I think trend-following can be done simply if you're willing to take the volatility it comes with it. But if you've evolved a little bit and 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 allow yourself to embrace, uh, you know, some maybe different techniques, newer techniques, whatever it might be then it's it's it still works but it's a little bit more complicated maybe than how we did it back in the 80s well said well said
2: oh, i was intrigued by this uh, article about from one of our competitors uh, trend follower well what they do other things as well and this is just a lesson their experience in, in 2018 was a 23 percent loss uh and so how do they how are they doing this year well they're doing really well this year and they he says in this article we didn't change the signals or the por- portfolio construction methodologies. Uh, us blaming tough times on market changes was to fall into retrofitting stories to the, was to fall into retrofitting stories to the facts. Uh they benefited as much from what it chose not to do as what it as what it chose not to do. So I think uh, it was a great article in a sense that uh you know, sticking to your systems, not making radical yeah. changes and not walking away from what you believe. Check it, uh, look over it, make sure, you know, you still are happy with it, but uh, you're just going to have these bad periods and you need to stick with it. And so, and this is uh, something I wrote about last week about change has its own cost, you mm-hmm. know, making changes. It may end up being a right thing to do, uh, over the long run, but, or maybe not, but some point in time the reason we were what we do, the reason we need to be so disciplined is because our day in the sun will come. So your inferior, slightly less than perfect system today, if you tinker with it, you know, 2020 might be its year. And I've had that happen where uh, we wanted to make major changes uh after underperforming in 2012. And uh as we were Contemplating making these changes in thirteen, uh, which we thought were definitely improvements, you know the two thousand twelve systems were outperforming everything. So we kept delaying these uh, positive changes based on our great research. So, you know, it's just one of those things where wait it out a little bit. And uh, there's just a cost. That's all I'm saying. There's a cost of changes, and there's a cost, I guess, of not making proper changes, especially if you're not diversified or taking shorts and things like that. So. But uh, nothing is risk-free when you make
1: changes. No, I mean, that, that's really the challenge. And this is actually, I think this is imp- really important. And I think exactly what you went through back then, which, of course, we've been through many times as well. I mean, that's the experience that investors pay for, right? Meaning, yes, you'll see newer managers with a shorter track record and their m- returns looks fantastic, right? but you cannot backtest experience. Impossible. And making those critical decisions, like, I mean, David Harding on record um, came out and said, you know, yeah, I've decided to reduce trend, but I won't know until 10 years from now if that was a good decision or a bad decision. And that's exactly right. So, um, super important uh, and, uh, and, 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 and investors shouldn't forget how valuable experience is um, not just when it comes to making changes like that how you handle big drawdowns uh, do you panic uh, do you you know just stick to it uh, I know we went on record uh, or our owner went on record uh, in in the um, there's an article written about Don in CTA intelligence because of our 45th anniversary and where he went on record saying you know we never deviate from the system but that's just us it doesn't you know doesn't apply to everyone. Some people will make, um, you know, decisions along the way uh, that are not necessarily based on the system. But that's just what has worked for us over the years. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's for everyone. And of course, sometimes it comes with, um, you know, more volatility than than people would uh, like.
2: Yeah, I think to some degree the positive and negative experiences in life. Uh, this is what I was thinking of when you were saying that um, helps you just follow the system more. Mm. And so maybe, and there's other things, there's better research where there's, you know, living through certain periods and trades where you were thought you were uh, too highly leveraged or not diversified enough or too short-term or too long-term. Of course, these things will lead to good research projects and improvement, but I think to a large degree, <clears throat> the amount of uh, exp- the, the experience we have in uh, the pros and cons of not following our system all the time are usually going to be cons, and they are going to make us feel better. But if you had a robot person who always followed their pretty darn good system, and they didn't violate a lot of the rules of trading, then maybe, you know, in hindsight, they could say, okay, I I had no experience. All I did was follow the rules. I mean, well, that's a very unique person. So I think to some degree, the rules and the experiences that we have, if they do nothing other than force us uh, to commit more to following a set of rules, that's... That's a hell of a lot of good experience there.
1: Mm, Very true. Well said. Um, I've got a few questions uh, that we can dive into, but I'm happy to uh, continue with any further tweets. Oh, let's go to the questions. Okay, cool. First question here is from uh, Michael. Uh, Michael uh, writes... So it's about this theme about um, sample uh, size uh, that we've talked about a few times. Uh, and not over optimizing results due to too few trades. Um, so one he says, can the number of trades a system produces be used as a shorthand method for evaluating whether a system is under or over optimized? If so, then is there a rough guide guideline uh, for number of trades for a given speed? Example, system X trade six month breakout. Could we compare number of trades to a simple equation such as trades equal speed divided by year to tell us if a system is likely to have been over-optimized? Not entirely sure. Uh, if I understand fully, maybe you do, what Michael is trying to to um, get us to discuss here. Um, I mean, of course, I mean, okay. So, so let me just say something here, Michael. Uh, maybe it's helpful or not. Um, I mean... Clearly, if you have a long-term system that only produces a couple of trades a year, you don't get a lot of uh, you don't you don't have a big sample size. Then you could apply the same rules to a hundred markets or fifty markets, and of course you get many more trades uh, to to analyze. But but I don't think I mean you have to take into account that there is the speed or the 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 length uh, time um, factor that so so you can't necessarily compare in my view. Uh, that you ha- need to have a certain amount of of trades uh, to to have enough uh, of, of your sample. If you're comparing a short-term system that produces lots of trades all the time, and comparing that to a long-term system, you you have to recognize that you're going to get fewer signals uh, in 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 the longer-term uh, time frames. But I think nowadays, if you have enough data and enough markets in your portfolio to to, to test, even if you don't want to trade all of them because of maybe account size or whatever it might be you should be able to go back far enough to get a decent uh, sample size uh, in terms of trades. And then you could also argue, and I know that argument, uh, I've heard that from from, from uh, some of our colleagues in the industry, that they don't even go back necessarily to the 80s or the 90s right now because they think that maybe the last 10 years worth of data is is, is enough to give you an idea of that. I don't know if I agree or disagree on that. I'd love to hear your view on that, Jerry. But um, And if you have any other thoughts... For Mike uh, regarding his questions.
2: Yeah, I'm not a fan of uh, eliminating data. I think um, that's probably not where you want to go. I think sample size is so important. And, uh, you know, we've said many times trading shorter term strategies or shorter as short as possible <clears throat> is preferable because you get more trades to look at historically. But the problem is, it's some of the shorter term systems are not very profitable. So you're kind of forced uh, to desire to make money and to have a profitable system. So you're going to accept systems with uh, fewer trades. But I think uh, one of the things about his question is, uh, I think that you just need the requisite sample size and whatever that might be in your mind or in your formulas. And then once you have that, I think you can move forward, and some of your systems may have more, uh, a lot more than the minimum, and some may have the minimum, but uh, probably deciding whether the system is robust or curve-fitted is probably, uh, you know, probably not what the sample size is going to tell you. If it meets that minimum requirement so i'm not exactly sure if i want to weight the systems or feel better or worse about the systems if they all have the minimum sample size requirement uh, i'll probably just just trade them and not uh, try not to trade those that don't have enough trades to look at
1: yeah well hopefully that was uh Helpful in some ways, uh, Michael. Thanks for your question. By the way, and if you, if you do want to send us a question, like uh, so many people have done this week, um, we love uh, to hear from you. Just send them to info at toptraders on blog.com and we do our best to bring them on the following show. Um, if we have nothing else uh, special lined up, so to speak, as a guest or something like that. Anyway, I um, also got a um, an email from from Richard. Uh, down in Australia, uh, Richard produces a lot of good stuff in the trend following world. And it was a long email, and we tried to get it into a question. I'm not sure we entirely succeeded in 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 getting it into a question. But I do want to to just uh, make a little uh, read a little bit part of the email that you sent, uh, Richard. I think it's important for people. I mean, you build your own systems, and and a lot of them. And you say, I track the performance of the longer term. Um, funds that operate in a global, diversified, systematic trend-following space and do not see any deterioration in the long-term compound average growth rate post-2000 in this grouping. So I scratch my head in trying to determine what these analysts are seeing. Unless they are cherry-picking shorter time periods as a wealth-building exercise, any serious investor or allocator must look at the performance measures over the longer-term horizon, otherwise how are are they any different to speculative gamblers so but again richard if you if you want to send us a specific question we'll do our best to get that in but we appreciate uh, the support and all the stuff you do on your side then we uh, have a question from bing uh And uh, let me see if there was something in the intro I need to get into. No, let's go uh, straight to the question, and that is, if a trader has a rules-based methodology that 1. generates a positive expected value, then applied over long term, uh, the full business cycle uh, that covers both high and low volatility regimes, and 2. follows prudent risk control, that risks no more than 3 to 4% of AUM per trade, <laughs> then questions, one, does position sizing really matter? Why not go all in uh, all the time on every trade signal if you can maintain prudent risk control of risking no more than 3 to 4% of AUM per trade? And two, during high volatility regimes, I found that it psychologically to be easier to scale into the positions rather than to go all in is maintaining... Uh, psychological composure of uh, the fundamental reason why everyone says sizing is important. Uh, and then he thanks us for the podcast. So, thanks so much, Bing, for your question. I think this is an interesting one because clearly you have a different view on what, um, uh, you know, risk tolerance maybe than than what we have. Um, and uh, just from, from my perspective on this, uh, Bing, I mean, the problem is that, of course, if we knew that all our trades were winning trades, yeah, you could certainly risk more, but most of the trades we do are still losing trades, and we don't know how they're going to show up. We don't know the sequence of how these trades show up, and therefore, even if they make money in the long run, if you get into a bad run where the sequence is lose, 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 and there's no winners in there, then risking 3-4% to 4% will basically put you out of business in a short space of time that's the challenge you have and this is why we keep saying trade small because even if you see mostly winning trades in your system i mean that's fine that's great but it doesn't really tell you if that's if that sequence is going to continue in the future so um, so, so you want to be careful i mean if you're only trading two markets okay fine but if you're trading like we do 50 60 100 markets you just can't risk that much per trade, uh, unfortunately. Uh, so, without knowing those kind of details, um, it's that's hard for me to to answer about the high volatility and the uh, psych, you know psychological side of things. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think psychology is really important in any. I mean, certainly if you're starting out as a trader yourself uh you know psychology is what's gonna trick you up and in your emotions are what's gonna make it really difficult for you to stick with the systems when you're in a 30 40 percent drawdown uh suddenly um so that's another reason why um and this is something that goes for investors as well one of the reasons why our industry have become lower vol overall is probably because the types of investors that uh, invest in these strategies. They don't want to see these huge drawdowns. Um, we just can't eliminate them. We know they're going to come from time to time, and we probably think that if we keep trading long enough, the biggest drawdown is going to be ahead of us, not behind us. So, again, psychology is important. If you uh, if you if you if you end up in a situation where you can't stick to your system, that's a really bad place to be in, uh, and that's another sign that you've you've been overtrading. Anyway.
2: Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of when I first learned about trend following when I was in a public accounting in the early 80s, and I thought this is the greatest thing ever. I mean, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen, and I learned about futures and commodities and going short, and it was just check, 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 amazing. So I thought, you know, I just put into my calculator what happens if I compound 100% a year, every year. I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a very wealthy person. So I think it's great to have that, uh, you know, commitment and that, uh, and that question, you know. It's, it's kind of like, if, if this, then why not uh, that? And so, well, this is a little bit more complicated. So um, I think one of the things that has happened, and this is just my opinion, and I've said it many times, <clears throat> um, it's the reason we, in order to stay, af- to make money for clients, we've had to become longer term. And the drawdowns are going to be larger, but the systems are profitable, and so, and then as you mentioned, in this age of uh, zero low interest rates, zero interest rates, negative rates, uh, the desire for a 10 percent return is much higher than uh, a 20 percent return or greater with the accompanying drawdowns. So everything is leading us towards uh, trading smaller because of the systems and because of the risk appetite that people have. And according to Moritz and I, um, the drawdown should be the max drawdown should be around at least twice as much as the annual return. So I think, in a nutshell, if you do a back test and you're risking three to four percent, at some point in time during the back test, you will have a more than hundred percent drawdown. I mean, I think that's where the rubber meets the road right there. Or we'd be doing it, and we'd be I should I'd be risking one percent or two percent. But I don't even do that. So I think that the amount, so maybe this uh, person who gave us this question has a bet, much better system, a uh, way to uh, implement a risk control overlay that prevents these major drawdowns two times the the annual return. And so maybe that's where the, it all is, which I don't, and I don't, so I don't know how to answer other than, I think 50 basis points is about right. <laughs> uh giving yeah. the, the the look back period and the the type of systems that i think are profitable these days have to be more
1: six to 12 month look backs versus for me it used to be you know uh, two weeks and of course it depends on the system and the strategy but it also depends on how many markets you trade um so uh, but hopefully being it was um, useful to get our thoughts on this uh, next question is from jacob uh jacob um Um, is happy about the uh, explanations on ATR and risk management from the last few weeks we've done. Appreciate the comment, Jacob. Um, And Jacob asked, uh, I have a question regarding strategies that warehouse risk. Can you give examples of warehousing risk other than strategies that sell volatility? Um, Well, I mean, this is again, this is just my interpretation of it. But for me, a lot of these relative value strategies um, like what we saw, I guess, with long-term capital where they were trying to, uh, you know, make money from small inefficiencies but with very high leverage and it all looks very smooth until something breaks, something that hasn't showed up in the data set before um, shows up and and then suddenly you realize that you have a lot more risk uh, in your portfolio than you ever imagined. And the whole thing blows up uh, or or nearly blows up in in other cases. I think what I mean by that is that I think some of these strategies can look safe, but actually they are warehousing a lot of risks that you may not see. While what we do is um, we, because we're directionally based, we, we, we mark to market our trades and positions every day. So we know exactly what the risk is and we show that. It shows up in the daily volatility. They don't look safe necessarily to some people, but they're not risky, they're just recognizing the risk on a daily basis. So that's what I mean at least when I think about these strategies. A lot of them are the convergent strategies, meaning people who bet on stability of some kind. What we do in our strategy is referred to as divergent, so we're betting on change uh, rather than stability. And I think for me, that's maybe one way you can differentiate between whether you're rare warehouse, housing risk or whether you're recognizing risk on a daily basis.
2: Yeah, that's a good explanation. I think uh, uh, reverting back to the mean type things, I think, uh, could get into a lot of trouble and can show short-term or long-term uh, profits, but they're sort of uh, set up to really lose a lot. And so... It, in a short period of time. So I would uh, follow it under the category of the opposite of trend following. Small losses, less than 50% winning trades and big profitable outliers. So it's the opposite of that. More than 50% winning trades and uh, small winners. And you get crushed on uh, the potential outliers. And when it doesn't revert to the mean. Uh, Warehousing, I I know that I read that on Twitter once. I'm not sure I fully understand that. Uh, Warehousing something, are are they warehousing it? Maybe. I'm not sure what that means or if that's true, but it's out there. A bad thing is out there when you don't take small losses and you're not in gear with the trend and you're not uh, trying to profit from large moves.
1: Yeah. Hopefully that was uh, helpful, Jacob. Then we move on to Nathan. This question actually is in relationship to a question or a comment that uh, Moritz made uh, last week on last week's podcast about um, crude oil WTI. But I think we can answer it anyway even uh, if um, Moritz is not here. So the comment that Moritz was making was he that he sees no trend in WTI as it just bounces in a range. And then you write, uh, Nathan, but when I put up a chart, price has pretty much only been up for the for two months since the beginning of October. It made me wonder how we define or construct the parameters for a trend. Perhaps Thus, perhaps on a 240-minute chart, crude oil has a very easy-to-see trend, but on a daily or weekly, it becomes more convoluted. How can we reconcile the various time frames that show a trend versus those that have no clear signal within the same instrument. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you you kind of touch upon it yourself and and answer it almost. It's all about time frame. It's you know, it's how you look at things. Uh, what may be a short term trend for some uh, is a nowhere near a trend for others. Uh, and I think since both Moritz, Jerry, and I, or with the firms, uh, we we uh, represent. Um, we are long-term traders, so uh, oil bouncing between fifty and sixty dollars for uh, a number of months uh, for us it's not really a trend. It's it's a range. Um, we want it to break out and move from sixty to a hundred or from fifty to down to twenty-five again. That that is something we can get uh, excited about. Um, but on you know the good thing is there are lots of other managers out there who do the short term and and play that side, and and they may be enjoying uh, what's been going on in, in, uh, in crude oil for the last few months, um, and that's fine. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, we're probably all trend followers to some extent, it's just a matter of how you define the time frame. Um, but we need, everyone needs some kind of directional move in one or two instruments, uh, you know, um, in order to make make money they just most of people you know certainly in the in the people where it's relative value they don't consider themselves as trend followers and neither would i but they are looking at you know some kind of directional move it's just in relationship to something else we just look at it in the individually and we want the market to uh to to move uh, for a certain period of time uh, and and ideally with a certain price move that we that is big enough for us to capture
2: yeah i'd say that's uh using breakouts, you know, and moving averages and with a 20-day look back. I used to do that in the 80s and it was great. It doesn't work anymore. But I think that some people who look at 20-day look backs, it does work for them. But they're not using the breakout or the moving average alone like I would or I did. So if you look at that, you know, Crude's rallied. I had a big down day after your question, I guess, was submitted uh, Friday. But um, you know, if you look at the last big uptrend in 17 and that crashed it towards the third quarter of 18, uh, there was many 20 day, uh, uh, you know, downtrends in that trend. So that's the problem. The markets are choppy. It makes a 20 day low. It doesn't mean anything. It goes back to the highs. It went back to the highs at least three times, you know, in that, uh, in that year and a half trend in 17 and 18. So that's what you're seeing on these back tests is that, uh, The 20-day doesn't work. And so what's interesting, though, is, well, um, when you decide to lengthen your look back, uh, what did you do? I looked at the same data that I looked at for the shorter-term look back, and the longer-term look back worked as well or better. And and it continued to work over the shorter-term data. So it wasn't that the long-term look backs all of a sudden got – Profitable. No, they were always as good or better than the shorter term look backs. I mean, not risk adjusted, but they were making money and they were making profit. And the open trade profit now uh, is uh, more noise in the trades and the trends. And uh, those systems uh, are more noisy and have bigger drawdowns. But we've maintained to keep the profitability. I mean, that's your first rule, right? I mean, it's great to have a shorter term look back and more sample size and less drawdowns, but it doesn't make money. So that's the dilemma what are you going to do lengthen your look back or something else fall target is popular money management overlay somehow not robust parentheses but that's popular as well
1: yeah thanks so much for the question uh, nathan hope that was uh, helpful next question all the way from canada chat writes in and Again, thanks very much, Chad, for your kind uh, words about the podcast. The question I would like to ask each of you is how do you each go about building up to your full size uh, in a given position once you get an entry signal? Are you simply all-in based on your risk per trade? Or do you start small with a quote-unquote feeler position and add to the trade as it goes in your favor? Uh, if you guys have any statistical back tests around this topic, I'd love to hear those thoughts uh, as well. Let me start with you on this one, Jerry. Um, I know we've touched upon this before. Well, yeah, we've touched on this before. I
2: set my max position um, prior to the trade. Yeah, so I know what my max position is going to be, and I sort of spread it out a little bit, uh, but um, in a sense that uh, I'll piece it in a little bit. I'll Th- you know a few different entries and exit points uh systems that should probably most of the time get in at three you know at different areas and then uh, exit at different places as well so that's how we do it uh, we don't really uh alter the plan or have a new plan once the trade gets profitable or the first two buys are profitable We, we sort of know what we're going to do from the get go sometimes uh we only buy one and it goes lower and sometimes we buy two and uh, then it goes lower. And sometimes we buy all three or four or five, whatever, and then it still goes lower. So we, we piece it in and we lose on all of them. So such is life, but diversifying your time frames somewhat uh, works well.
1: Yeah, so just to to add to that chat, so essentially what Jerry's saying, and we do the same, so we know roughly how much risk we want to take on, on, on in a given market, right? So that's your starting point. And then the question is how many... Smaller confirmations do you need in order to get to a full position? So we don't regard it as feeler positions or trades, but essentially the shortest time frames will be the ones that are getting get hit first, and and then you start building your position, and and the longer term time frames uh, of of your parameter uh, sets will be the last ones to uh, to get in. So you just build it up following the rules. There's no um, magic to it. Um, what you can say, I think, is there might be a bit of a difference in so so by only having say you could say the the extreme you could have one entry point and you get full all in or you could have 20 entry points and you get in over 20 uh, smaller steps and of course if you get into a great trend early on that's obviously going to be uh, better to get in straight away but at least in my experience doing it step by step longer term Uh, is probably the way to go about it, if your account size is big enough to do so. Uh, Simply for the reason that if you have a lot of, and we will go through these periods from time to time, where there's a lot of uh, false breakouts or noise or whip soaring, however you want to determine it, if you only have one or two or three uh, entry points, um, you can lose a lot of money in a short period of time, um, because you get fully in and then you have to get out again, and then you might get fully short and back again and so on and so forth so I think that's generally why we also on our side like to have um, you know a a larger number of of entry uh, points now of course it doesn't mean that sometimes some of these points can't be hit on the same day and you do end up getting in relatively quickly but it's not necessarily how it's structured and so just keep that in mind again depending on a little bit of again on your on your system I mean if it's a shorter term system you obviously can't wait if I have maybe had to have twenty confirmations, but if it's a longer term system like we trade, you can certainly have multiple entry points to before you are at a full position, but' it's still the full position needs to be predetermined before you uh, start building it up. so thanks for that Chad. uh last question for today uh it's a couple of questions from chris Chris, who has written in before, so nice to hear from you again, Chris. He starts off. I want to congratulate Jerry about his U V. You you know what this means UVA football team beating V A Tech this week. Oh, I was
2: there. Thank you. I flew up uh, Friday morning, seven a.m. to Charlottesville. Got there within a, an hour before the game. Flew back uh, Saturday morning. And it was. I was wondering, you know, in the fourth quarter, why did I do this? What a mistake! <laughs> but you know, in all sports, Niels, uh, you have to put yourself out there. Uh, you can miss a lot of fun, uh, once-in-a-lifetime events. Uh, hopefully not uh, once-in-a-lifetime for this, but sure. if you don't risk it, you've got to take some risk in life and uh, sports and the markets. You've got to put it out there and, uh, to get the reward. And so many times I have uh, shaken my head, why did I put myself in this heartbreaking situation only to be rescued in the last few minutes? So that's what happened on, on Friday. So thank okay. you.
1: Yes, Good for you. Good. All right, well, then let's get back to the the trading side of your question, Chris. Uh, I've been developing my system for years and been trading it live for months now. As the account grows, I add markets to the portfolio. I have a list of 30 markets that I want to trade, but the account size restricts the number of markets available. The spreadsheet that I keep indicates that when the system is running completely and trading in all 30 markets, there will still be a lot of money on the sideline. What should I do with this cash? And then that's one question. Second question. Also, has the margin requirement for Bitcoin changed? I don't uh, look at the margin requirements often, but it seems that the requirement went up substantially. So let's do deal with the bitcoin first because I have no idea um and because we don't trade it but Jerry you may know whether it's changed.
2: I don't keep up with that. I know um our margin requirements are low 10 or 15% and we put that cash in treasuries. Um it's a it's sort of a something that uh it's not that relevant I think. If you have that amount of money that's left over, then you should put that money in treasuries. And uh, it's irrelevant, uh, your margin to equity ratio, although if it's 40 or 50%, you're probably the same person taking that 3 to 4% loss per trade of your AUM. So trade smaller and have even more money that's going to earn interest. But I, I know that uh, Bitcoin traditionally at the brokers have had a uh, high margin, short Bitcoin as well. That it, I think that there's a difference between being long and short. I think short, might the, the margin might be a, a lot greater. But if we trade 80 markets or 90 markets, and one of them is Bitcoin, one of them uh, has uh, crazy margin requirements, that's okay, right? We're going to not be worried too much about it. We're just going to pay that increased margin and not care because the other 89 or 99 markets have low margin requirements, so not a, not an issue.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So let me put it this way, Chris. I mean, if you're just trading your own money and, and you have uh, lots of cash still spare, I mean, that's a great problem to have. And uh, as Jerry suggests, I mean, keep them safe. Uh, you, you may need some of it for, for margin later on, but keep it liquid, keep it safe. Now, if you're talking about it as a business, right, what Chesapeake has to do, what Don has to do, I mean, we have to look after hundreds of millions of dollars of our clients money that we don't use for margin so that for, for that we need to have a real plan right so in our case we use a cash manager so a, you know some managers do it themselves um in our case we outsource it and there's some there will be some guidelines for what the cash can be invested in which is typically um, you know, government bonds uh, or highly, highly rated corporate bonds, you, you know, the money that investors invest, you want to keep safe, first and foremost. They're not, the, 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 the spare cash is not, we, we don't look at it as something that should produce a return. We, we need to keep them safe. Uh, we saw during the financial crisis that banks went under money market funds froze et cetera, et cetera, and you just don't want to be in a situation like that so if you're a cta and or, and or any other hedge fund and you have lots of cash you need to to look after for your clients um first and foremost make sure they're safe they need to be in liquid instruments um, but don't take any chances with them don't get tempted by higher rates of return in in some um you know silly stuff it's not liquid the day you need the liquidity for sure um so just stay with it uh in, in in super highly liquid fixed income instruments yeah okay those were the question for this week i will quickly go through uh the performance which will almost be the performance for november and uh, not quite um because this is as a thursday evening Uh, So we still need Friday to know how the month uh, finished. I think directionally we'll be fine, but I think Friday was a bit of a down day, so you're probably going to have to subtract a little bit from from the numbers I'm going to go through, and then we can see, Jerry, if there's any more freestyle content we want to dig into afterwards before we finish uh, this week. But anyways, the B Top 50 Index, as of thursday was up 1.22 for november up 7.41 for the year socgen cta index up 1.26 for the november up 7.34 for the, the year the socgen trend uh, index up 1.63 and up 10.7 for the year the socgen short-term trainers index looks to have a good month up 1.10 up 3.18 for the year and the bridge alternatives index up 1.85 percent for the month of November, and up 10.49 year to date 2019. So we're still one month uh, still to to come um, before we know how the year ended. Um, since it's just you and me, Jerry, um, do you have any um, thoughts, ideas, topics, spur of the moment, um, <laughs> something, something you want to bring up?
2: i think uh, next week uh, i want to spend some time on some uh, articles and papers that came out this week concerning um shorts and maybe shorts or drag and we talk a lot about shorts on this uh, podcast and how much we love our short trades and they add diversification and risk control so there was an article a paper out recently that that the study was uh, don't you know shorts are a problem don't do shorts so maybe it was stocks only Maybe that's the case for stocks, but I'll look into that more. We'll talk maybe more next week about um, shorts in general.
1: I think that's a great idea. By all means, uh, send it to Moritz and I, and we'll do our best to uh, read up on it as well. But I think that's a good good idea to have some topics. I um, actually uh, met with some people we've been referring to a lot this week, uh, the good folks at Epic Capital in Dublin. And they, of course, are the authors of a great recent paper on dealing with that deals with some of the challenges that that our industry has been uh, accused for being subject to. Um, and um, I think we got I think I managed to get uh, a bit of a buy-in to uh, get uh, one of the uh, happy folks to come on the podcast um, um maybe before Christmas, who knows, or maybe early next year to talk about that a little bit uh, more in-depth. I think it's such an important piece of research that they've done. I encourage everyone to uh, get a copy of it, uh, read it. and um, But anyway, let's hope we can discuss that in more detail as well. And of course, if you have any other ideas, um, I know we had a couple of suggestions to get Andreas Klino on the show. So Andreas, if you're listening, you know, reach out. Let's uh, get it going. Otherwise, I will reach out to you. Yeah, any other things that you think could be fun, interesting, um, educational, um, we're open-minded to to this. So with all of that said, let's uh, wrap up this uh, week's conversation. We hope you have enjoyed it and um, if you like what you heard of course um, we are always uh, very grateful if you would leave us a rating and review in itunes Uh, they really do help and of course you can share the these episodes with a like-minded friend um you know one share is 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 fine by us so uh, from jerry and me thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode of the systematic investor and in the meantime have a great week and a good start to the festive